This was a vision. I'm telling you, these people are Satanists. As I sit here, they are Satanists. Look, the world is full of these kind of things. Black masses, mutilations, mutilations. The incubus, the succubus. I'm telling you, we got to go down to the religious supply store. We got to get ourselves a couple of gallons of holy water. My cousin Jerry's a priest. He can get us a deal. Do you want him to take your family, kidnap them, tear their livers out, and make some kind of satanic pate? Hey, once they get in here, it's over, pal. Trigger warning. This podcast may include explicit content that will take you out of your comfort zone and make you question reality. Listener's discretion is advised. start this month with an explosion okay being july and all we need fireworks and as most of you know i recently went on the tinfoil hat podcast to give a taste test of the occult laurel canyon series i have gained some new ears since my appearance and i wanted to make these episodes just a little bit easier to find and enjoy so i have re-uploaded parts one and two of the canyon for those who are interested in hearing them for the first time or the 44th time for those who are longtime listeners of my show For parts three and four, some scrolling will be involved, but definitely worth the effort going to find them. When I started this series, I had no idea where it would take me or the response I would receive. And as I always say, I am so humbled and grateful to be a part of your journey seeking truth. So, Just a massive thank you for coming along for the ride with me. And speaking of the journey so far, we are quickly approaching the 100th episode of the Cosmic Peach podcast. Woohoo! I mean, the 100th episode that's still up and hasn't been removed. So to celebrate for the big 100, I'm counting down your favorite guests and interviews, but I need your help. I will be posting a poll of sorts on my website for voting. You can choose from any of the guests who have joined us so far, whether they are repeat offenders or one-time crushers, you'll get to vote for the 10 foil royals of the Cosmic Peach podcast. All the guests that I've had on my show, in my opinion, meet the criteria of one, loyal to the foil, two, crush syndrome, and three, cosmic fire status. So, I know, I know, it's so hard to choose. 
that's why I'm going to announce the top three. Let me know who your nominee is and which episode of theirs blew your mind. The Tinfoil Royals will be announced on the 100th celebration episode in just a few weeks' time. And this is also my way of recognizing and thanking all of the amazing people who have helped me along my podcast journey and continue to support me. So cast your vote and we will announce the Tinfoil Royals on the celebration show. There is a link to the Big 100 voting um, in the show notes. So if you go to the show notes, click the link for CosmicPeachPodcast.com slash Big 100 and you can cast your nominee there and which episode of theirs blew your mind. But for the refresh episode today, it's the Occult Laurel Canyon Part 1 and 2. And if everything works how I think it will, number 1 will fade out just like it did the first time and immediately roll into Part 2. So it's about a two and some hour episode. But this way, it's just a little refresher so you don't have to scroll through a year's worth of episodes to find them. So enjoy, and for all of the new listeners who have stumbled across the Cosmic Peach podcast, welcome. I'm so happy to have you, and I hope I continue to blow your mind. Strap in, everyone, and let's dive right back into the canyon. guys doing today? For me, it's July 19th and it's about 115 degrees today. I'm sitting here chilling, drinking uh, Michelob Ultra, feeling pretty good. Um, I've recorded this so many times that I'm just going to try to take the pressure off of myself of trying to make it absolutely perfect because I just want to bring you guys the absolute best episodes and there are no excuses. So, let's see if I can get through this one without stopping in the middle and erasing everything <laughs> like I have the last four times. Um, but that's good though. Being passionate about what you love is good. It's good. I got this information sent to me by a very close, near, dear, and special person, Whitney Fox. I just can't say enough about her. I just love her to death. So, she sends me this blog by David McGowan, and he, so, I'll, I'll try to maybe cover this in part two, but David McGowan was definitely off for his involvement in the conspiracy theory community. I think he brought so much information out that they were scared of him. That's just my opinion. But so rest in peace, Mr. David McGowan, and thank you, Whitney, for the information. It was mind-blowing, and I hope to do it justice today. Although, I'm only going to scratch the surface. 
and then you can go do some more research and digging on your own if you find it interesting. So, the way our story begins with David McGowan's research was his outlining of what led to the Vietnam War. And it's very interesting to me that some of the characters we meet along the way in this story, it all kind of leads back to the Vietnam War and the people who were involved in it. So, August of 1964 is where we're going to begin our story. And U.S. warships under the command of U.S. Navy Admiral, remember this name, George Stephen Morrison allegedly come under attack while patrolling Vietnam's Tonkin Gulf. This event is later dubbed the Tonkin Gulf Incident. And what it does is it results in the passing by the U.S. Congress of the Tonkin Gulf Resolution. And that was like the green light because the passing of the Tonkin Gulf Resolution quickly led to America's immersion into the bloody Vietnam War. And before it's over, 50,000 American bodies, along with literally millions of Southeast Asian bodies, will litter the battlefields of Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia. And this is not, like we've seen so many fucking times before, a false flag operation. It was not an attack that was deliberately provoked at all. Now, what the Tonkin Gulf incident actually was is an attack, quote-unquote, that never took place at all. But by early February 1965, the U.S. will begin indiscriminately bombing North Vietnam. And by March of that same year, the infamous Operation Rolling Thunder will have commenced. And over the course of the next three and a half years, millions of tons of bombs, missiles, rockets, and chemical warfare agents will literally be dumped on the people of Vietnam. And by April 1965, 25,000 fully uniformed American kids barely out of high school will be slogging through the fucking rice paddies of Vietnam. And by the end of the year, U.S. troop strength will have surged to 200,000. So, what else is given birth to elsewhere in the nation during those early months of 1965? A new music scene, and also the hippie flower child movement hang with me you guys this is this is gonna be crazy okay so it's just beginning to take shape in the city of los angeles and the hippie flower child movement comes out of los angeles in a geographically and socially isolated community known as laurel canyon a heavily wooded, rustic, serene, yet vaguely ominous slice of L.A. nestled in the hills that separate the Los Angeles Basin from the San Fernando Valley. Musicians, singers, and songwriters suddenly begin to gather here. And a number of rock music superstars will emerge from Laurel Canyon. 
beginning in like the mid-1960s and going all the way through the 70s. And the first to drop an album out of the Laurel Canyon scene will be the band The Birds, whose biggest star will prove to be David Crosby. The band's debut song was Mr. Tambourine Man, which will be released on the summer solstice of 1965. I love tambourine. Hey, Mr. Tambourine Man, play a song for me. Okay. And it will be quickly followed by releases from the John Phillips-led Mamas and the Papas around January 1966. And then Love with Arthur Lee, May 1966. And then Frank Zappa and the Mothers of Invention, June 1966. And then we have Buffalo Springfield, another great one, featuring Stephen Stills and Neil Young. And that comes out in October 1966. And the last one I want to mention here is The Doors, January 1967. So while we're talking about The Doors... One of the earliest on the Laurel Canyon Sunset Strip is Jim Morrison. And Jim will quickly become, as we all know, one of the most iconic, controversial, critically acclaimed, and influential figures that take up residence in Laurel Canyon. Curiously enough, though, the self-proclaimed Lizard King is the son of Admiral George Stephen Morrison. The very same Admiral George Stephen Morrison, who was the commanding officer of the U.S. warships that supposedly came under attack in what was dubbed the Tonkin Gulf Incident. Yeah. This same, very same one. So, even while his father is still actively conspiring to fabricate an incident that will be used to massively accelerate an illegal war, the son, Jim Morrison, is positioning himself to become an icon of the hippie anti-war crowd. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, who else do we have among our cast of characters? We have Laurel Canyon's father figure, who is the rather eccentric personality known as Frank Zappa. And Frank will hugely be influential among his contemporaries and kind of be the like I said before the father figure of the movement. And so Zappa will literally play host to virtually every musician who passes through the canyon in the mid to late 1960s at, get this, the quote-unquote log cabin, which was his home. So, the log cabin sat right in the heart of Laurel Canyon at the crossroads of Laurel Canyon Boulevard and Lookout Mountain Avenue. And the quote-unquote log cabin was run as an early commune with numerous people occupying various rooms in the main house and the guest house. 
as well as in, get this, peculiar caves and tunnels lacing the grounds of the home. And the name, by the way, the log cabin, it it kind of implies like this quaint homesteady vibe, but what it really was was a cavernous five-level home that featured a 2,000-plus square foot living room and three massive chandeliers and an enormous floor-to-ceiling stone fireplace. Does that sound like a rustic hippie vibe hangout commune? (laughs) No, this is a mansion in LA, folks. Don't get it twisted. So, anyways, Frank Zappa will also discover and sign numerous acts to his various Laurel Canyon-based record labels. Some of them, such as psychedelic shock rocker Alice Cooper, will go on to superstardom. And Zappa, along with members of his entourage, will also be instrumental in introducing the look and attitude that defined the hippie counterculture. Zappa, though was, by numerous accounts, a rigidly authoritarian control freak and a supporter of U.S. military actions in Southeast Asia. Frank's dad also had little regard for the youth culture of the 1960s, given that Francis Zappa was, in case you were wondering, a chemical warfare specialist assigned to the Edgewood Arsenal. Edgewood is, of course, the longtime home of America's chemical warfare program, as well as a facility frequently cited as being deeply enmeshed in MKUltra operations. So Frank Zappa literally grew up at the Edgewood Arsenal, having lived the first seven years of his life in military housing on the ground of the facility. So... He grows up, and the family later moved to Lancaster, California, near Edwards Air Force Base, where Francis Zappa continued to work on classified operations for the military intelligence complex. His son, Frank Zappa, meanwhile, prepped himself to become an icon of the peace and love crowd. This is a setup, folks. This is a setup. Absolutely. And before we continue, I just want to say the 60s music is the soundtrack of my life. Me and my mom would jam out to the mamas and the papas. We know every word, every song. That will never change for me. Although the information that I'm about to give you is repulsive and makes you never want to hear another song even close to the 60s or the 70s. Keep in mind what I always say about separating the art from the artist. There have to be some things in life that you can still enjoy, like a Michelob Ultra, perhaps. So, moving on. Zappa's manager is a shadowy character by the name of Herb Cohen who had come out to L.A. from the Bronx just before the music and club scene began heating up. Cohen, a former U.S. Marine, had spent a few years traveling the world and blah, 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 before his arrival on the Laurel Canyon scene. What the, who the fuck is he to be managing music? 
He knows nothing of it. It's just, it's everyone has to be connected, right? They're all players in the game. He knows nothing of music, yet he's going to manage Frank Zappa and the Mothers of Invention, along with every other person he signs to his record label. Whatever. Let's keep going. That makes zero sense. So, making up the other half of the Laurel Canyon's first family, if you want to call it that, is Frank Zappa's wife, Gail Zappa, who was formerly known as Adelaide Slopeman. <laughs> I changed my name, too. So... Gail hails from a long line of career naval officers, including her father, who spent his life working on classified nuclear weapons research for the U.S. Navy. And Gail herself had once worked as a secretary for the Office of Naval Research and Development. And she also once told an interviewer that she heard voices all her life. Uh, yeah, bitch. Those are the sounds of devils. You're into the dark shit. So many years before their nearly simultaneous arrival in Laurel Canyon, wink, wink, Gail had attended a naval kindergarten with none other than Jim fucking Morrison. The very same Jim fucking Morrison that had attended the same Alexandria, Virginia high school as two other future Laurel Canyon luminaries. John Phillips and Cass Elliot of the Mamas and the Papas. So, I watched an interview this one time with John Phillips, and he was like telling this story of how he discovered Mama Cass, which now is a bunch of baloney. But he said she was working at a bar as a waitress and would walk around waiting the tables and singing. And he wasn't very interested in her because she was an alto. But one day she got bonked on the head by a pipe and all of a sudden could hit these really high notes. And so he offered her a spot in the band. Okay, maybe... He just forgot that they went to high school together and grew up together and their family was closely related. Not related, but like they knew each other and they fucking grew up together. Maybe John Phillips got bonked on the head by a pipe. Give me a break. So Papa John Phillips will also play a major role in spreading the emerging youth counterculture across America. And before arriving in Laurel Canyon... And opening the doors of his home to the soon-to-be-famous, the already-famous, and the infamous. John Edmund Andrew Phillips was, shockingly enough, yet another child of the military intelligence complex. The son of U.S. Marine Corps Captain Claude Andrew Phillips. And his mother who claimed to have psychic and telekinetic powers. I'm sure she did. I'm sure they did lots of nice little experiments on her. So John attended a series of elite military prep schools in the Washington, D.C. area, culminating in an appointment to the prestigious U.S. Naval Academy at Annapolis. And after leaving Annapolis, John married, you guys are going to die, Susie Adams a direct descendant of founding father John Adams. Susie's father, James Adams Jr., had been involved in what Susie described as cloak and dagger stuff with the Air Force in Vienna. 
which is basically what we like to call covert intelligence operations. And Susie herself would later find employment at the Pentagon alongside John Phillips' older sister, Rosie, who dutifully reported to work at the complex for nearly 30 years. And John's mother, Dean Phillips, also worked for most of her life for the federal government in some unspecified capacity. And John's older brother, Tommy, was a battle-scarred former U.S. Marine who found work as a cop on the Alexandria Police Force, although he had a disciplinary record for exhibiting a violent streak when dealing with people of color, that bastard. So, it just makes you realize that if John Phillips wasn't of pedigree, would he have been allowed to marry Susie Adams, a direct descendant of a founding father, John Adams. I, it's just everything you've ever heard is true, people. This is all covered up under the disguise of rolling joints and wearing flowers in their hair. But these people are not peace-loving hippies at all. There's this song that I always sing as as a joke, really, from the Mamas and the Papas. And um, I, I used to love it, but now I just... It's all just a bunch of lies, like how they met and how they were involved in this scene and how they came together. They per- they pretty much all grew up together and they're, all their families were in the military. They went to the same damn kindergarten together. But it's that one song that's like, Joan and Mickey were getting kind of itchy just to leave the folk music behind. Love that song. And no one's getting fat except Mama Cass. And so, speaking of Mama Cass, listen to this shit about the Mama and the Papas. So, John Phillips will go on to entertain many infamous people. And some of them not in a good way. Like Charlie Manson whose family, quote-unquote, spent time at the log cabin and at the Laurel Canyon home of Mama Cass Elliott. Saul and Denny working for a penny, trying to catch a fish on the line. No, none. Oh, fuck. So, did you know, by the way, that Mama Cass, her home, sat right across the street from the Laurel Canyon home of Abigail Folger and Wojtek Frakowski? Yeah, we'll circle back, we'll circle back. And if you don't recognize those names, those are two victims of the Manson family. So let's move on to yet another Laurel Canyon person. We're going to talk about one of the earliest and brightest stars, Mr. Stephen Stills. And before his arrival on Laurel Canyon, Stephen Stills was the product of yet another career military family. Raised partly in Texas, Stephen spent large swaths of his childhood in El Salvador, Costa Rica, the Panama Canal Zone, and various other parts of Central America. As well as the rest of our cast of characters... Stills was educated primarily at schools on military bases and at elite military academies. 
and among his contemporaries in Laurel Canyon, he was widely viewed as having an abrasive authoritarian personality, which is what you'll keep finding be probably because of their family being in the military and having a strict upbringing, they were really generally described as being pricks. But so let's move on. Another icon and one of Laurel Canyon's most flamboyant residents is a young man by the name of David Crosby, founding member of the Birds, as well as Crosby, Stills, and Nash. So Crosby is, not surprisingly, the son of an Annapolis graduate and World War II military intelligence officer, Major Floyd Delafield Crosby. And the Crosby family tree includes an array of U.S. senators and congressmen, state senators and assemblymen, governors, mayors, judges, Supreme Court justices, revolutionary and civil war generals, signers of the Declaration of Independence, and members of the Continental Congress. It also includes more than a few high-ranking Masons. Listen, if America had royalty, David Crosby would probably be a duke or a prince or something. And he's leading the hippie counterculture movement? He's a He's a damn patriot. This makes... Listen, you guys are going to be so sick to your stomach by the end of this. Okay, another shining star on the Laurel Canyon scene just a few years later will be singer-songwriter Jackson Brown, who, want to guess, the product of a career military family. Brown's father was assigned to post-war reconstruction work in Germany, which very likely means that he was under the employ of the OSS, which was a precursor to the CIA. So U.S. involvement in post-war reconstruction in Germany largely consisted of maintaining as much of the Nazi infrastructure as possible while shielding war criminals from capture and prosecution. Paperclip. And against that backdrop, Jackson Brown was born in a military hospital in Hildburg, Germany. And while we're on it, let's just go ahead and talk about Mike Nesmith of the Monkees and Corey Wells of Three Dog Night, two more hugely successful Laurel Canyon bands who both arrived in L.A. not long after serving time with the U.S. Air Force. Nesmith also inherited a family fortune estimated at 25 mil. Yeah, nobody I know inherits a family fortune of 25 mil, even in 2020. So let's, let's, let's talk about this for a second, because it makes me think of the movie Forrest Gump. And you would think that these hippies grew up in trailer parks, smoking weed, writing songs, loving life outside in a field playing with a stick somewhere. Wrong. Wrong, wrong, wrong. They grew up on military bases and went to elite prep schools. And this whole counterculture movement has been spoon-fed to us people. And who else was in that movie, by the way? Tom Hanks. But this is another episode, another episode. And But wait, hold on. Wait a minute. If these artists were rebelling against the values of their parents then why didn't they ever speak out against them, huh? 
Why did Jim Morrison never denounce or even mention his father's key role in escalating one of America's bloodiest illegal wars? And why did Frank Zappa never write a song about the horrors of chemical warfare, but he did write a charming little ditty entitled The Ritual Dance of the Child Killer? Uh-huh. I mean, the same goes for the mamas and the papas, and even David Crosby and Stephen Stills. They never once denounced the family values that they were raised with. So, I guess the question is then, what if the musicians themselves were every bit a part of the intelligence community as their parents? So, basically, they were creating a fake opposition that could easily be controlled and led astray. And in reality, they were pretty much all playing on the same team. Great. Wonderful. Ugh. You know, there are also a lot of murders, murderers, and dead bodies that turn up in Laurel Canyon. As it turns out, the most bloody mass murder in LA's history took place in one of the city's most serene pastoral and exclusive neighborhoods. The murders of, and you might recognize these names, Stephen Parent, Sharon Tate, Jay Sebring, Wojtek Frakowski, and Abigail Folger at 10050 Cilio Drive in Benedict Canyon, just a couple miles to the west of Laurel Canyon, also known as the Manson Murders. These victims had deep ties to the Laurel Canyon scene. And I'll let you know here in a second how that was. But let's start with victims Folger and Frakowski. They actually lived in Laurel Canyon. At 2774 Woodstock Road in a rented home right across the road from a favored gathering spot for Laurel Canyon, the home of Mama Cass Elliott. Many of the visitors, by the way, of Cass Elliott's home included shady-ass drug dealers who were also regular visitors to the Folger-Furkowski home. And Furkowski's son, by the way, was stabbed to death on June 6, 1999, 30 years after his father met the same fate. Interesting. So now we have J.C. Brings Hair Salon which sat right at the mouth of Laurel Canyon, just below the Sunset Strip. And Sebring um, did Jim Morrison's hair. And one of the investors in his Sebring International Business Venture was Mr. John Phillips himself. Again, Mamas and the Papas. Now we have Sharon Tate. Sharon Tate was very well known in Laurel Canyon, where she was a frequent vis visitor to... Um, John Phillips, Mama Cass, and Abby Folger's home, because they were her friends. And Denny Doherty, the other papa in the Mamas and the Papas, claimed that he and John Phillips were actually invited to the Cilio Drive house on the night of the murders, but as luck would have it, they never made it over. It sounds like they got tipped off. But along with the victims, the alleged killers also lived in and around the Laurel Canyon scene. Bobby Boussolet, for example, lived in a Laurel Canyon apartment during the early months of 1969. Charles Tech Watson, 
who allegedly led the death squad responsible for the carnage at Cilio Drive, lived for a long time in the home on Wonderland Avenue. And Charlie himself often paid visits to the log cabin and actually lived there for a little while, but we're going to talk about that later on. And did you know it said that Neil Young used to sing the praises of Charles Manson? And given some of Neil Young's questionable behavior lately, it doesn't surprise me at all. So during a 10-year period, which Stephen, Tate, Sebring, Frakowski, and Folger all turn up dead, a whole lot of other people connected to Laurel Canyon did as well. And they may not have died in the canyon, but their deaths were very suspicious and they were heavily connected with Laurel Canyon. So it doesn't necessarily have to be that they died in the canyon, but they're all interwoven. And I'm going to list some for you now. So this list includes, but is certainly not limited to, the following names. Marina Elizabeth Habe, whose body was carved up and tossed into the heavy brush along Mulholland Drive, just west of Beaumont Drive on December 30th, 1968. Habe was just 17 at the time of her death. Christine Hinton, who was killed in a head-on collision on September 30th, 1969 at the time. Hinton was a girlfriend of David Crosby, and she was also the founder and head of the Birds Fan Club. And get this, she was also the daughter of a career army officer stationed at the notorious Presidio base in San Francisco. So she was obviously picked for David Crosby, who's our American royalty. Uh, Jane Doe, number 59, found dumped into the heavy undergrowth of Laurel Canyon in November 1969 within sight of where Habe had been dumped less than a year earlier. The teenage girl who was never identified had been stabbed 157 times in the chest and throat. Now we have Alan Blindow Wilson, who was singer, songwriter, and guitarist for the Laurel Canyon blues rock band Canned Heat, was found dead in his Topanga Canyon home on September 3, 1970. His death was written off as a suicide OD. You'll see a lot of those, just like Marilyn, probably not a suicide OD. Jimi Hendrix, who reportedly briefly occupied the sprawling mansion just north of the log cabin after he moved to L.A. in 1968, died in London under seriously questionable circumstances on September 18, 1970. Though he rarely spoke of it, Jimmy had served a stint in the U.S. Army, with the 101st Airborne Division at Fort Campbell. Jim Morrison, who for a time lived in a home on Rothdale Trail behind the Laurel Canyon Country Store and may or may not... There's a train. I'm sorry, can't do anything about it. So Jim Morrison may or may not have died in Paris on July 3rd, 1971. And why I say that is because the events of that day are shrouded in mystery and rumors, and the details of the story have changed over the years, so nobody knows for sure. Then we have Brandon D. Wilds, 
A good friend of David Crosby and Graham Parsons was killed in a freak accident in Colorado on July 6, 1972, when his van plowed under a flatbed truck. Christine Furka, a former governess for Moon Zappa and the Zappa family's former housekeeper at the log cabin, died on November 5, 1972 of an alleged drug overdose though all her friends suspected foul play. Christine Furka was in the perfect position to have either overheard something she wasn't supposed to hear or see something that she wasn't supposed to see, especially being the governess and housekeeper for the log cabin. So I think she heard or saw something and maybe she was going to talk and whoop, little overdose for you. Sorry, Christine, dead as a doornail. Next, we have Danny Witten, a guitarist, vocalist, songwriter with the Neil Young Band. Died of an overdose on November 18, 1972. Bruce Berry, a roadie for Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young, died of a heroin overdose in June 1973. Clarence White, a guitarist who had played with the Birds, was run over by a drunk driver and killed on July 14, 1973. Graham Parsons. Formerly with the International Submarine Band, the Birds, and the Flying Burrito Brothers, allegedly overdosed on a speedball at the Joshua Tree Inn on September 19, 1973. And after his death, his body was stolen from LAX by the Burrito Brothers road manager, Phil Kaufman, and then taken back out to Joshua Tree and ritually burned on the autumn equinox. Nothing suspicious there. <laughs> now we have Mama Cass Elliot, the Earth Mother herself of Laurel Canyon, whose circle of friends included musicians, Masonites, young Hollywood stars, singer-songwriters, and assorted drug dealers. She died in the London home of Harry Nilsson, who was a close friend of John Lennon. And she died on July 29th, 1974. And the initial press report said that Cass had choked to death on a ham sandwich. But later on, the official cause of death was listed as heart failure. But I think her cause of death may actually been knowing where too many of the bodies were buried. But I, I like the ham sandwich angle. Let's go with the ham sandwich. Amy Gossage, Graham Nash's girlfriend at the time, was murdered in her San Francisco home on February 13, 1975. She was just 23 years old at the time, and she had been stabbed nearly 50 times and was bludgeoned beyond recognition. And we also have Phyllis Major Brown, wife of singer-songwriter Jackson Brown, reportedly overdosed on barbiturates on March 25th, 1976. Bobby Fuller, singer-songwriter, guitarist for the Bobby Fuller Four, was found dead in his car near Grauman's Chinese Theater on July 18th, 1966, after being lured away from his home by a mysterious 3 a.m. phone call of unknown origin. Then we have Gary Hinman, 
a musician, music teacher, and part-time chemist, was brutally murdered in his Topanga Canyon home on July 27, 1969. Convicted of his murder was Masonite Bobby Beausoleil from the Manson family. Next, we have my very favorite, Janis Joplin, the vocalist extraordinaire, who was found dead of a heroin overdose on October 4th, 1970 at the Landmark Hotel, about a mile east of the mouth of Laurel Canyon. And like Morrison and Hendrix, Joplin died at the age of 27. Now enter the 27 Club. (laughs) Just kidding, but she is a part of it. So... Next on the list, Dwayne Allman and Barry Oakley, lead guitarist and bass player for the Allman Brothers, were killed in freakishly similar motorcycle crashes on October 29th, 1971, and then on November 11th, 1972. And lastly, we have Phil Oakes, folk singer, songwriter, and political activist, was found hanged in his sister's home in Far Rockaway, New York, on April 9th, 1976. So there we have a couple. Of na- now, this isn't all of them. This is just some I thought you might find interesting. There's a lot more. And there's a, mo- a lot more weird stuff. Now, um, I want to talk about, about the log cabin a little bit more, just to set it up for you. Um, shortly after the log cabin was built, some department store mogul built an imposing castle-like mansion across the road from it at the corner of Laurel Canyon Boulevard and what would become Willow Glen Road. And the department store mogul's home featured rather creepy towers and the foundation is said to have been riddled with secret passageways, tunnels, and hidden chambers. And the grounds of this state are still laced trails leading to grottos and elaborate stone structures and hidden caves and tunnels and you know what else the grounds of the laurel tavern slash log cabin were also laced with these odd caves and tunnels according to some different people one of the secret tunnels running under laurel canyon boulevard connected the log cabin to the houdini estate now enter Harry Muffucking Houdini. And this is not a joke. Harry Houdini, who died on Halloween Day 1926, supposedly of an attack of appendicitis precipitated by a blow to the stomach, is also connected with the Laurel Canyon. So the only problem with a- appendicitis precipitated by a blow to the stomach is that medical science now recognizes that to be an impossibility. So Houdini was likely murdered by poisoning. And Houdini was apparently given some kind of an experimental serum in the hospital. And his wife, Bess, may also have been poisoned, but she survived. So Houdini's death on October 31st, 1926, came exactly eight years after the first death to occur in what would become known as the Houdini house. So what was the first murder that occurred exactly eight years earlier? Well, in 1918, not long after the home was built, 
these two gay guys, lovers, were fighting and a quarrel arose on one of the home's balconies during a Halloween birthday party. And the gay lover of the original owner's son reportedly ended up splattered on the ground. And according to legend, the businessman managed to get his son off, but only after paying off everyone he could find to pay off, including the trial judge. And the aftermath of the party proved to be extremely financially devastating for the family, and the home was put up for sale. So not long after that, as fate would have it, Harry Houdini was looking for a place to stay in the Hollywood area as he had decided to break into the motion picture business and he found the perfect home in Laurel Canyon in the home that would forever after carry his name. But what is more interesting about Houdini is that it turns out Harry Houdini was a spook working for both the U.S. Secret Service and Scotland Yard. And his traveling escape act was pretty much just a cover for intelligence activities. Just as John Wilkes Booth used his career as a traveling stage performer as a cover for intelligence operations. So now we've connected Houdini in with this snarled up mess. So in the 1950s, as Barney Hoskins wrote in Hotel California, Laurel Canyon was home to like, quote unquote, the hippest young actors, right? So according to Hoskins, Marlon Brando, James Dean, James Corburn, and Dennis Hopper all lived in the canyon. In addition to Hopper and Dean, though, yet another of the young stars of Rebel Without a Cause found a home in the canyon as well. Natalie Wood. (laughs) I'm telling you, it's like every episode I've ever done or ever thought about doing leads back to the canyon. So full of synchronicities here. So Natalie Wood lived in the very home that Cass Elliott would later turn into a Laurel Canyon party house. The same party house that was right across the street from the Manson murders. So now I want to introduce you to someone. And I want you to remember this name. This guy, his name is Vito Palikas. And his full name is said to have been something I can barely even pronounce, which was something along the lines of Vitatus Alafonsus Polycus. He was born the son of a Lithuanian sausage maker circa 1912, and he claimed that he hailed from Lowell, Massachusetts. Following his release from the service around 1946, Vito Palikas arrives in Los Angeles. Palikas claimed to be a serious artist, like a painter, poet, dancer, photographer, sculptor, what have you. But there's scant evidence that can be found that supports this claim. However, he would have a huge impact on Frank Zappa and would also contribute to molding and shaping the hippie movement. 
he was also, as a side job, involved in disgusting pedophilia and dark arts. And his little three-year-old son would die under suspicious circumstances and Vito Polycus would go out dancing after he hears the news of his child's death. And Vito Polycus' son was reportedly subjected to pedophilic treatment by his parents and others. And the boy's parents displayed a truly disgusting and chilling indifference to the child's death. And so after the the death of the child, Vito then fled to Haiti and then after to Jamaica, accompanied by his wife and their new baby daughter, whose name was Groovy Nipple. And if you think I'm fucking kidding you, I'm not. Her name was Groovy Nipple. So, the Manson family lived on Laurel Canyon Boulevard in the log cabin for a few weeks, as I had mentioned earlier, in the late 1960s in a quote-unquote cave-like hollow in the back of the residence. So why does this connect with Vito Polygus? Manson came there because he had heard about Vito, but Vito was already gone by the time he got there. But then later in the 1970s, Vito Palikis resurfaced up in North Cotati, California. I want you to remember the name Vito Palikis because we are going to circle back to that in just a minute. So, moving on. Many young and super glamorous Hollywood stars forge very close bonds with the Laurel Canyon musicians. Some of them, like Peter Fonda, found homes in the canyon so that they could live, work, and party amongst the rock stars. And in their free time, they could pass John Phillips' wife around to just about every swinging dick in the canyon, including Jack Nicholson, Dennis Hopper, Warren Beatty, Roman Polanski, and Gene Clark of the Birds. And some of these movie stars, by the way, never left. Jack Nicholson, to this day, lives in a spacious estate just off the portion of Mulholland Drive that lies between Laurel Canyon and Coldwater Canyon. And from the symbolic relationship between the Laurel Canyon actors and the musicians was this bond of love and creativity. And from that arose a series of feature films that are now considered to be counterculture classics. And the most critically acclaimed of them all, and the one with the deepest roots in Laurel Canyon, was Easy Rider. So it's from a script that was co-written by Dennis Hopper and Peter Fonda. And it starred Fonda and Hopper along with Jack Nicholson. And since Easy Rider had such deep roots in the Laurel Canyon scene, let's talk about the director. His name was Jeremy Kay, also known as Jerry Kay. And before Easy Rider, Kay worked on such cinematic abominations as Angels from Hell, Hell's Angels on Wheels, also with Jack Nicholson, and Scorpio Rising, Kenneth Anger's Homage to Gay Bikers. So, 
In the mid-1970s, Kay would write, direct, and produce a film entitled Satan's Children. But what's more interesting than all these gross movies is a little something about his membership in the 1960s with a group known as the Solar Lodge of the Ordo Templi Orientis, or OTO. <laughs> OTO, OTO. Oh my God, you guys. It's like, it's all here for you. It's a buffet. So the Solar Lodge of the Ordo Templi Orientis found itself in the news and not in a good way. Just after Easy Rider opened up in theaters across America. So, Two weeks after Easy Rider comes out on July 14th, 1969, police acting on a phone tip raided the Solar Lodge's compound near Blythe, California, and found a six-year-old little boy locked outdoors in a six-by-six wooden crate in the sweltering desert heat. The young boy whose father was a Los Angeles County probation officer, had been chained to a steel plate for nearly two months in temperatures reaching as high as 117 degrees. According to an FBI report, the box also contained a can, quote-unquote, partially filled with human waste and swarming with flies, and the stench was nauseating. So... Before being put in the box, the little boy had been burned with matches and beaten with bamboo poles by cult members. The leader of the cult, Georgina Brayton, had reportedly told cult members that when it was convenient for her, she was going to give the little boy LSD and set fire to the box in which he was chained and give him just enough chain to get out of reach of the fire. Yeah, right. But don't worry, killing the child had also been discussed and apparently condoned by the boy's mind-fucked mother. And 11 adult members of the sect were charged with felony child abuse. The majority of them were young white men in their early 20s. All were brought to trial and convicted, thank God. But in a weird bit of timing, actually, the raid that resulted in the arrests and convictions of these OTO members actually coincided with the torture and murder of musician Gary Hinman by a trio of Manson family members. And the massacre at the Tate residence occurred less than two weeks after the raid on the OTO compound. And then Manson's Barker Ranch hideout would be raided a few months later on October 12th, 1969. The birthday of Aleister Crowley, the grand poobah of the OTO, until his death in 1947. So I know I mentioned earlier Jack Nicholson a few times. And I want to talk about him a little bit because obviously I've always loved Jack Nicholson. But I found some information that's kind of like, mm, I, I, I'm going to say a red flag, but it's like, You could literally cut and paste Ted Bundy's bio into Jack Nicholson's bio because they both grew up. There's a lot of similarities, but one of them in particular is that they both grew up thinking that their 
mother was their sister and raised by their grandmothers. And actually, it's said that Nicholson was born at St. Vincent's Hospital in New York City, but there is no record of such a birth at the hospital or in the city's archives. As it turns out, Jack Nicholson has no birth certificate until 1954, by which time he was nearly an adult. He did not officially exist. That is so creepy. Even today, the closest thing he has to a birth certificate is this certificate of a delayed report of birth that was filed on uh, May 24th, 1954. And the document lists John and Ethel Nicholson as the parents and identifies the location of the birth at the Nicholson's home in Neptune, New Jersey. And you know, it, it appears that there's no real way to determine who Jack Nicholson really is. And he's actually told journalists before that he has no interest in identifying who his father was or verifying his mother's identity. So that's, you could do a whole episode just on Jack Nicholson. But I want to blow your minds a little bit on this next section because so far, We've encountered Masons, the FBI, the OSS, the CIA, um, the Rothschild family, military intelligence of every conceivable stripe, and the OTO, along with the neocon cabal and just about every other nefarious group that regularly pops up in the conspiracy culture. With one exception... We have not met up with any member of the Rockefeller clan. Lucky for you, though, I will be providing the juicy details now. So, I got this from David McGowan's research, and this next contribution comes from deep within the archives of Time magazine from an article entitled The Bride War Pink. Published six decades ago on February 23rd, 1948. Quote, one morning last week, bespectacled Brian Browden, editor of the weekly Okeechobee News, sauntered into the Okeechobee courthouse and stopped to eye the bulletin board in the main hall. Among the marriage license applications, which by Florida law must be publicly posted for three days before a ceremony, he saw something which made him goggle. Winthrop Rockefeller, 35, of New York, the fourth of John D. Rockefeller Jr.'s five sons and one of the most eligible bachelors in the world, had stated his intention of marrying one Eva Spears, also of New York, end quote. Who is Eva Spears? Somebody had announced, some guy had said that she was Miss Barbara Paul Spears of the fine old Philadelphia Pauls and thus a society girl of impeccable pedigree. He was wrong, 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 wrong. So who was this mystery woman? This woman, who had once had a brief career in Hollywood before moving to Paris and taking a job as a secretary at the U.S. Embassy, she appears to have gone by many names at different times in her life, including Eva Paul, Eva Paul Spears, Barbara Paul, Barbara Paul Spears, 
and Bobo Rockefeller. None of them, however, were the names she was given at the time of her birth. Her parents were Lithuanian immigrants, and she was born Javet Palakuit in some kind of a coach patch near Noblestown, Pennsylvania. But even that was not her real name, because in her parents' homeland, Palakuit is the feminine version of a surname we have previously encountered, Polycus, which was her parents' surname. Eva Paul's father, as it turns out, just happened to be the brother of Vito Polycus' father. That means that Vito Polycus was a first cousin of Bobo Rockefeller, and cousins by marriage of Winthrop Rockefeller himself. Vito was also a cousin of the couple's only child, Winthrop Paul Rockefeller, who would later serve as the lieutenant governor of the state of Arkansas. And thus, the Rockefellers are connected to the Laurel Canyon scene. Why not? I mean, Vito Paulikas is into all the same shit, right? Pedophilia, gross, nasty, whatever. And so Laurel Canyon continued to be an ideal place for all the rock musicians and hippies and flower children to hang out in the 60s all the way through the 70s, even with the stench from all the dead bodies that kept piling up. And speaking of dead bodies, Mr. Brian Jones of the Rolling Stones, who purportedly drowned without assistance in his home swimming pool on July 3rd, 1969, at the age 27, is also on the Laurel Canyon death list. And just three days after Jones had tragically drowned to death, the Stones with the Hells Angels providing security played a previously scheduled concert in Hyde Park and the footage actually appears in Kenneth Anger's Invocation of My Demon Brother. But so what does that have to do with Laurel Canyon? Uh, in the summer of 1968, the Stones were actually flirting with Satanism and the occult and spending a lot of time in Los Angeles. A lot of time in and around Laurel Canyon. And during that time, Mick Jagger was involved in two occult film projects, which were Kenneth Anger's Lucifer Rising and another film by Donald Camel, which was called Performance. And Jagger was the first musical superstar that Kenneth Anger asked to compose a soundtrack for the movie Lucifer Rising. Um, but he would actually go on to later tried to solicit the soundtrack from Led Zeppelin's Jimmy Page. Jimmy Page, by the way, is the proud owner of one of the world's largest collections of Aleister Crowley memorabilia, uh-huh. including Crowley's notorious Boliskine estate off the shores of Scotland's Loch Ness. No wonder there is a fucking Loch Ness monster out there. He opened the portal to some shit. But anyways... The film did not feature a soundtrack by neither Jagger or Page. Lucifer Rising featured a soundtrack posed, recorded, and arranged inside of a prison cell by convicted murderer Bobby Beausoleil of the Manson family. 
How fucked is that? Donald Camel, by the way, was the son of Charles Richard Camel, who happened to be a close friend and biographer of notorious occultist and British intelligence asset Alistair Crowley. Donald himself was the godson of the Great Beast. So on his film performance, Camel recruited this dude named Bernard Alfred Jack Nietzsche, who was an occultist and the son of a supposed medium. And he was the one to create the film soundtrack. Nietzsche was also a familiar presence on the Laurel Canyon scene and collaborated with Buffalo Springfield, Neil Young, Crazy Horse, Randy Newman, Michelle Phillips, The Turtles, Captain Beefheart, and Carol King. And Nietzsche also worked with several of the people we will be adding to the Laurel Canyon death list, including David Blue, Ricky Nelson, and Sonny Bono. Nietzsche's performance soundtrack was composed, according to author Michael Walker, in a witch's cottage in the canyon. And I'm not exactly sure what a witch's cottage is, but it's nice to know that Laurel Canyon had one. And makes a lot more sense to me because Elton John always used to say that he wrote every single one of his songs in quote-unquote witch language. So, This is dark shit, people. But, you know, let's now add Donald Camel himself to the death list. Since on April 24th, 1996, he caught a bullet to the head. And before moving on from that movie performance, there is one other thing I need to mention. John Phillips of the Mamas and the Papas once stated that performance was about estranging oneself from society in order to create a new, better social order, quote-unquote, with really intelligent people. And according to Phillips, quote, it's almost a matter of inbreeding at this point, end quote. Oh, I, I looked like a featherless chicken when I read that because I saw this interview, and, and let me back up a little bit. I watched a movie all the time as a kid with my mom called American Graffiti. It was one of our favorite movies of all time. I know every line in that movie. I mean, literally every line in that movie. And in the movie, there's this little ugly thing. And she's like 12 or 13 years old, big old chompers. And she's a red-haired girl who plays this character that's essentially a nerd who has a crush on this older guy and he doesn't do anything weird with her or anything but he like drives around town and they prank people and it's just a happy fun loving movie but it turns out that the nerd girl with the big chompers is Mackenzie Phillips John Phillips of the mama and the papa's daughter And she has now come out as an adult and stated that she engaged in a 10-year consensual sexual relationship with her father. And she said they would take drugs together and she would just wake up in his bed with her pants around her ankles and her dad cuddled up next to her. And it happened several times. Um, And for this quote by John Phillips, saying it's almost a matter of inbreeding at this point. Of course he thinks that. He was literally having sex with his own daughter because that's what these elite people do. This 
is normal to them. And if you are raised as a child in a family who thinks like this, maybe you would even think it was normal and grow up and do it to your own kids because that's how they do this. You're born into it, raised in it, and then you continue on perpetuating this vicious cycle. And it's gross and disgusting. And you know who else had a thing for young girls who had no business being married? Elvis. So now I need to add Elvis to the death list as well. I'm telling you, you guys, this runs deep. This runs deep. So Elvis arrived in L.A. around like 1956 to begin what would prove to be a prolific film career that would continue throughout the 1960s and would result in the creation of nearly three dozen motion pictures. Elvis reportedly spent his off time hanging out with his pals um, and roommates who were actually Canaanites, uh, Dennis Hopper and Dick Adams. And in later years, Presley's backing musicians were considered to be among the best session musicians in the business, and they were in high demand among the Laurel Canyon crowd. So Elvis' bass player, for example, is on some of the Doors tracks, and the entire band was recruited by Papa John Phillips to play on his less than memorable solo project. And then Mike Nesmith's critically acclaimed Post Monkeys project, the first national bank, featured Presley's band as well. And then Graham Parsons actually hired Elvis Band to back him up on uh, two solo albums he recorded in like the twilight of his career. So even though Elvis really only had like peripheral connections to Laurel Canyon, it's still there. And he's still technically a part of it. And we all know what he was doing with Priscilla. <laughs> so I guess I don't really have much more to say about Elvis other than he reportedly died on, on August 16th, 1977. The supposed victim of a drug overdose and died at age 42. But I'm highly questioning that now. And moving on to the next new name on our list. Oh, I can barely even say it. It's so heartbreaking. You guys are never going to believe this. The next person on our list was born Henry John, last name I can barely pronounce, Duchendorfen Jr., better known as John Denver. John Denver was born in Roswell, New Mexico. On December 31st, 1943. A few years later, the town of Roswell would make a name for itself and become something of a tourist destination. Been there, saw everything, got a t-shirt, loved it, by the way. Henry John Duchendorfen Sr., though, might have known a little something about that incident. Who Henry John Duchendorfen senior is John Denver's dad. Um, and he might have known a little something about it because he was a career U.S. Air Force officer assigned to the Roswell Army Airfield, later renamed the Walker Air Force Base, which was likely the origin of the object that famously crashed in Roswell. 
Denver was front and center at the so-called Riot on the Sunset Strip alongside people like Peter Fonda, Sal Minio, and uh, Sonny and Cher. And in autumn of 1997, Denver died when his self-piloted plane crashed soon after taking off from the Monterey Airport. Um, and the date of the crash, curiously enough, was one that we keep hearing, which is October 12th. So he was a part of the scene. He knew everybody. And his dad was a military person working at Roswell and probably staged the whole Roswell thing. I mean, I, that's me joking. But at this point, I wouldn't put it past them. I mean, really. Fuck you, John Denver, for making me love you so much and then breaking my heart. And by the way, your last name is stupid, Duchendorfen. So, who are we going to end it with? We are going to end it with former Beatle John Lennon, who is sure to be one of the most famous names to be found on the Laurel Canyon death list. So Lennon also has the distinction of being one of the only Laurel Canyon alumni whose cause of death is acknowledged to have been homicide. So the ex-Beatle, of course, never lived in the canyon, but he was definitely a fixture on the Sunset Strip and at various Laurel Canyon hangouts, frequently in the company of Harry Nilsson. Harry Nilsson is the person who Mama Cass died at their house eating a ham sandwich. So John Lennon was gunned down on December 8, 1980, supposedly by Mark David Chapman, but more likely by the second gunman, another episode, another episode. Lennon was, as everyone knows, murdered in front of New York's Dakota Apartments, which had been portrayed by filmmaker Roman Polanski in the 1960s as a den of satanic cult activity in Rosemary's Baby. Yeah. So, not long before Lennon's murder, Chapman had approached occult filmmaker Kenneth Anger and offered him a gift of live bullets. So, just days after John Lennon was shot and murdered, Kenneth Anger's long-delayed final cut of Lucifer Rising makes its New York debut, not far from the bloodstained grounds of the Dakota Apartments. And that is going to be the end of part one. I have so much more shit, you guys, to put into part two that you will be singing my praises in just a few weeks. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Again, I'm just scratching the surface because I'm not going to sit here and make you listen to a 26-hour long episode. And I'm going to include now a couple of clips. One is from Frank Zappa trying to dodge the question of how his band came together why wouldn't you just say why your band came together? Why is it all mysterious? I don't know. Maybe it's because it's a setup. Um, and then I'm going to include another clip of Mackenzie Phillips talking about the several rapes she encountered from her father. Uh, let's catch back up on part two. I hope to see you there. Let me know what you think of this episode. Thank you so much for listening. Frank, how did the Mothers of Invention come about? You mean the name? 
because the record company refused to have a group on the label called the Mothers. They had talked to some uh, people with marketing expertise and had ascertained that the American public would refuse to deal with a group called the Mothers. So I had to have of invention on the end of it, otherwise they wouldn't give us a record contract. How did the band come together? Um, by accident. Okay. <laughs> Let me go on to a different topic then. That's good. Okay. <laughs> and I went over to my father's hotel room and we, he had a lot of drugs, I had a lot of drugs, we took a lot of drugs. And all I remember is arriving in the room, getting high, and then I remember sort of, you know, kind of, I don't know if you know this, you probably don't know this, if you're in a blackout and you're not in your body and then you come to in your body I was in the act of having sex with my father and what did I you think what did I think no. I thought how did this happen how did I end up here and, and plus which I was on drugs so I mean there's that element of is this really real and he was on drugs absolutely what did he say uh, he didn't say anything at that time I was probably cognizant for less than a minute slid back into a blackout and woke up in my own hotel room the next day don't remember anything from that time on. No. When was the next time you saw him? Probably the next day. What did he say? We, it was, we didn't speak about it until I brought it up to him several months later. And I said to what him... What were the circumstances yeah. then? The circum we were in New York, and he was living off of Houston, and he was sitting in a rocking chair, and I remember the lighting was sort of, you know, low. And I'd gone over there to talk to him because... I was very disturbed by this reality, and I said, you know, Dad, we really... You're still taking drugs? Yes. Yeah, okay. I said, we really need to talk about what happened in Florida. We need to talk about how, and I used the word rape for want of a better word, how you raped me. And he said, raped you? Don't you mean when we made love? And I thought to myself, wow, I I'm so screwed. I'm s I, 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 I sort of closed my mind to it and put it in a little emotional mental box and took it out and looked at it every once in a while, but I never really, uh, what do you do? What do you do? Where was your mother? My mother and I weren't really in contact that much then, but I, I was with my mother a couple days ago and I laid it all out for her. I, I told her about it. I told my Aunt Rosie about it. Um, and they, and I said, you know, what, what should we do? This is wrong. I've been, I've been violated, you know? And they said, you know, you're, you're really risking a lot if you go after him. And I said, well, I don't want his life. I don't want bad things to happen to him. But I also don't want bad things to happen to me as a result of this. And I was convinced to let it lie. Now, you write, sex with my father was like a runaway train. I felt like I had no power to do anything about it. And you say it was consensual. How soon after the first time did it occur again? Uh, the way it occurred after the first time, nothing occurred for, I was 18, 19 years old. Nothing occurred for probably three or four years. Then I went on the road with the new mamas and the papas. And I was with my dad on a daily basis and there were lots and lots of drugs involved. And your stepmother was there too? No, she was at home with the kids. Okay. The younger kids. I have younger brothers and sisters. Quite a lot younger than I am. And um, uh, we would take drugs and do the show and you know all that kind of insanity. And I started waking up in my father's hotel room bed with I wore a lot of leggings. You know those tight black legging pants back in the 80s because it was, you know, really big then. And, and uh, I would wake up with them down around my ankles. And I would think, how did this, where am I? 
how did this happen? And I look over and I'm in my father's bed and he's sleeping next to me. And this happened, it didn't happen, as I've said, it didn't happen every day, it didn't happen every week. It occurred. Did he have any guilt? Look, my father lived in a world of his own creation. He was a great man. There's a fine line between genius and insanity, as we all know. Um, he tried very hard to live a life that he, of his choosing. And I think, and this is only my point of view, I think that, that to him, if sex happened between a father and a daughter and nobody protested, where's the problem? We are back in action for part two, the long-awaited part two of the Occult Laurel Canyon. And today, I want to dive right in. And first off, let me say, this was definitely meant for me to research. And this was definitely meant for me to cover because the information came to me in such a synchronistic and serendipitous way. First, starting off with Whitney Fox sending me a blog by David McGowan about the Laurel Canyon, which I expanded with my own research, and then Sean McCann actually reached out on a completely separate, different topic, um, and he said, you know, I listened to your episode about Natalie Wood, and if you're going to do Old Hollywood, then you should talk about this actress. And he tossed this name out and I go, oh my God, I've never even heard of this woman. So then it piques my curiosity. I'm looking into this woman and you guys, it leads right back to the canyon. So I'm really excited about this episode. And just as a recap, we last left off with John Lennon 
from the Beatles, obviously, and his assassination. But today, I want to open up with talking about an opposing band, which would be the Beach Boys. And I want to talk about Dennis Wilson of the Beach Boys in particular. So, today we're going to be exploring the Rustic Canyon, which lies about nine miles west of Laurel Canyon. And it was there in Lower Rustic Canyon that Dennis Wilson lived in a log cabin style house at 14400 Sunset Boulevard. And this expansive home sat on three landscape acres of gently rolling hills. And so it was here in this log cabin style house, of course, that Charlie Manson and various members of his entourage will move in and live with Wilson in the summer of 1968. But Tex Watson, curiously enough, was already living there. As many as two dozen members of Manson's clan spent the entire summer there, with Wilson picking up the tab for all the expenses. So obviously he really liked these people because I don't pick up a tab for anyone. Not even my husband. <laughs> so Dennis Wilson busied himself with recording Manson in his home studio and inviting fellow musicians like Neil Young over to the house to hear Charlie perform. Yeah, and so Dennis would later claim that he had destroyed all the Manson demo tapes and that he remembered almost nothing of the time he spent with Charlie and the family, and that he certainly knew nothing about the Tate and LaBianca murders, which were committed in the summer of 1969, about a year after the family had vacated the Rustic Canyon residence. But he knows nothing, alright? So... At some point, Wilson must have had a little change of heart because he decided that maybe he did know a little something about the murders. And he said, quote, I know why Charles Manson did what he did, end quote. He actually said, someday I'll write a book, I'll tell the world, and I'll explain why he did it. Yeah, okay, so that book was never written. But instead, Dennis Wilson drowned under questionable circumstances on December 28, 1983 in the marina where his ship was docked. Pure coincidence, I'm sure. But speaking of Manson, we have heard in the last episode how arguably the bloodiest and most notorious mass murder in the city of Angels was directly connected to the Laurel Canyon music scene. That being, of course, the Manson murders, Sharon Tate, all of them, the LaBianca murders, but the city of Los Angeles can also boast one of the most notorious single victim murders as well, which was the most gruesome and most famous unsolved murder in the city's history. Now, what am I talking about? I'm talking about how on January 15th, 1947, the mutilated body of aspiring actress Elizabeth Short was found posed in a field. The body was ritualistically butchered 
and she was found nude, sliced cleanly in half, and completely drained of blood. So parts of the body had been removed, and her body had also been thoroughly sanitized. And bruising clearly indicated that the young girl had been savagely beaten, and forensic evidence suggests that she had been forced to eat feces during her torturous ordeal. And she was quickly dubbed the Black Dahlia, and it is by that name that she is known and written about today. Of course, everyone knows the Black Dahlia. So, of course, much has been written about Elizabeth Short, and it's all contradictory, but what seems to be agreed upon is that she had recently worked at a military facility that is now known as Vandenberg Air Force Base, and she had some kind of a close connection to a U.S. Naval Hospital in San Diego where she may have worked. This murder occurred some 20 years before Laurel Canyon's glory days. So I know what you're thinking, like, how in the world could this be connected to what we're talking about in the Laurel Canyon in the 60s and 70s? Well, I'm going to connect the dots for you and it will make perfect sense. So let's dive into it. And, you know, if you want to have a really bad day, go look up the crime scene photos of the Black Dahlia. These images are absolutely horrifying. But that, unfortunately, is what elite ritualized crime looks like. So, let's start connecting the dots. The first dot I want to connect is the birth of John Edmund Andrew Phillips to his parents Claude and Edna Phillips on August 30th, 1935. Stick with me, folks. So, Claude, John Phillips' father, is a retired Marine Corps officer and engineer, and John Phillips' grandpa, John Andrew Phillips, is a prominent architect that one day mysteriously fell to his death on a construction site according to John Phillips' autobiography. But that tends to happen to family members associated with the Laurel Canyon. It's weird. They they end up dying in, like, hor- horrific ways. But we're going to touch on that in a second. So John Phillips' mother was a lady named Edna, and she had what some people call, like, an unconventional upbringing because... Edna's mom was supposed to be like this psychic faith healer and, you know, her dad was whatever, but she actually was abducted by gypsies and taken away when she was just one years old. And Edna's father, John Phillips' grandpa, actually found her a year later in Mexico on some Liam Neeson taken bullshit. So, Yeah, I guess you can call that completely unconventional. I don't know a lot of people whose mothers are psychic faith healers who are involved with gypsies and they get kidnapped and abducted and taken to Mexico for a year. But anyways, so Edna was 15 when she met and began a relationship with Claude Phillips. Um, And by 18, Edna gives birth to the couple's first child, Rosie Phillips, John Phillips' sister. 
who was born on New Year's Eve 1922, and Rosie is the one that would later become a career employee of the Pentagon, where John's first wife, Susie Adams, would also find work. And so, years later, according to John, Rosie's daughter, Patty, would be found dead of an overdose in a girlfriend's apartment in North Hollywood. And there was a lot of questions around this mysterious death. So it's like I said, people connected to the Laurel Canyon die weird. So in the late 1920s, Claude Phillips was commissioned to Haiti, where he remained for four years. And then he was sent back to Quantico, then shipped off to Nicaragua before finally returning to Alexandria, Virginia, where John Phillips, who would grow up to become arguably the most important music figure in the canyon, grew up and went to high school in Alexandria, Virginia. So, like I said in the last episode, John grows up and marries his first wife, who is the aristocratic Susie Adams, descendant of President John Adams, and get this, the occasional practitioner of voodoo. Yeah, little voodoo hoodoo for you there. So their first son, Jeffrey, was born on Friday the 13th in December of 1957. Shortly after that, John found himself, of all places, in Havana, Cuba just as it was about to fall to the revolutionary forces of Fidel Castro. And then some months later, in late 1958, John Phillips flies back to Los Angeles and he begins performing on an amateur's night at the Pandora's Box on Sunset Strip. And his first band was called The Journeyman. And it featured... John Phillips, obviously, Scott McKenzie, and Dick Weissman. And it was while touring with the journeyman that John Phillips met this young lady named Holly Michelle Gilliam. And I know what you're thinking, like, what the fuck does this have to do with the Black Dahlia? Just hear me out, okay? So, here is a little background on this situation. John Phillips will later marry Holly Michelle Gilliam. And some background on Michelle. Well, Michelle was born November 10th, 1944 in Long Beach, California. And her dad was described as a merchant mariner, a movie production assistant, and a self-taught intellectual. And Michelle's mom was described as a Baptist minister's daughter. But she actually died of a brain aneurysm when Michelle was just five years old. So after um, her mom dies of a brain aneurysm, Michelle's father took the kids and promptly relocated to Mexico. Now, Michelle's father is a guy named Gil Gilliam. And he is also very much so connected in this whole Laurel Canyon scene as well. And so Let's talk about how. The family, Gil Gilliam, Michelle Phillips, and them remained in Mexico for several years, but then they later returned to Southern California, and Gil finds work as an L.A. County probation officer. And according to John Phillips, Gil's work often required him to go out of town. 
But I would think that it would be rather difficult for him to be probation officering when he's out of town. So I think that was a cover for something. But as I mentioned in the last episode, when the movie Easy Rider came out, the solar lodge of the Ordo Templi Orientis was sieged, if you will, and a six-year-old little boy was found locked in a box being tortured to death and it was the son of remember I said an LA County probation officer well that happens to be Gil Gilliam Michelle Phillips father so the little boy that was locked in the six by six box that was getting tortured to death happens to be Michelle Phillips brother so (laughs) it's like I said it always leads back to something and everything is definitely connected. So, on with this story. In 1958, while John Phillips is vacationing in war-torn Cuba, Michelle finds this new mother figure, uh, as she describes her, in this 23-year-old girl named Tamar Hodel. And Tamar's father was a man by the name of Dr. George Hodel. And George Hodel is described as being the most pathologically decadent man in Los Angeles and the city's venereal disease czar and a fixture in its A-list community. And it was widely known that George Hodel embraced that all-purpose Luciferian creed, do what thou wilt. Ooh, yes, so you were waiting for it, and now here it is. Let's connect the dots. So Tamar and her siblings grew up in their father's Hollywood house, which resembled, get this shit, a Mayan temple, and was the site of these wild parties. And Hodel was often joined by director John Huston and photographer Man Ray. Remember those names. So this luxurious home reportedly featured, among other amenities, a subterranean walk-in vault. Don't know why the fuck you need one of those, but they had one. So this house lied about three miles due east of the mouth of Laurel Canyon. And Tamar Hodel often talked about how she uncomfortably posed nude for dirty old men like Man Ray and had once wriggled free from a predatory John Houston. Her father, George Hodel, not so shockingly, had also committed incest with her. And she said when she was 11, George Hodel, her father, taught her to perform oral sex on him. And her father also plied her with erotic books, grooming her for what he touted as their transcendent union. Yeah, sex magic. So he also freely shared her with his wealthy and influential friends. So to Tamar's horror... She becomes pregnant at the tender age of 14 with her father's baby. So, to her greater horror, 
her father wanted her to have his baby. So she freaks the fuck out. And according to my research, a friend took Tamar to go get an abortion. And Dr. George Hodel was so infuriated that he busted Tamar over the head with his pistol and began beating on her, which prompted Tamar's stepmom to assist her in going into hiding. So Dr. George Hodel was then arrested and charged with, among other things, offering his young daughter to several of his friends at an orgy and incest and blah, blah, blah. So he gets arrested and he's put on trial. And in this sensational 1949 incest trial, a witness stepped forward and described how she was hypnotized by Hodel at a party. And she also claimed that she had witnessed him attempt to hypnotize other girls at the party. Now, Allegations that the rich and powerful were dabbling in incest, hypnotism, mind control, pedophilic orgies, and Luciferian philosophies surely must have shocked all the people in Los Angeles in the 1940s. Right? Wrong. (laughs) Because this is just business as usual for them. And what else is business as usual for them is that Dr. George Hodel was acquitted. (laughs) So I guess the glove didn't fit. But the theory does. (laughs) Now, it's really not a theory. It's all actually provable. But I know what you're thinking. Why am I telling you all this? So here goes. While Dr. George Hodel was standing trial... On these sensational incest charges, he was, and still is today, the prime suspect in the Black Dahlia murder case. Yeah. (laughs) And, you know, of course, there have been numerous suspects identified in this case over the years, including actor-director Orson Welles, but George Hodel seems to be a much more likely suspect than any of those other ones who have been identified. And the most likely scenario is that George Hodel committed this crime in junction with various other pedophilic people in his Luciferian social circles. So, for example, that would have been Man Ray. And, of course, because they were so close, he is a super compelling suspect given that the way Elizabeth Short's body was posed appears to mimic the Minotaur, one of Man Ray's better-known photographs. You guys got to go look up the Minotaur by Man Ray and compare it to the way Elizabeth Short's body was posed in the field. And the way that her torso was severed actually is the same place on the torso of the Minotaur photograph where it the torso ends in the photo. So a lot of very, very crazy similarities. And if you go compare them, you will get the goosebumps like you wouldn't fucking believe. So as it turns out, Man Ray was something like the Robert Maplethorpe of his era. The same Robert Maplethorpe 
that has been linked to the Son of Sam case and various other ritualized murders. Mm-hmm. So how is it then that Michelle Phillips, at 14 years old, becomes involved with Tamar Hodel, the daughter of this wealthy and influential George Hodel, has never actually been explained. But, you know, the relationship between Michelle and Tamar was actually, they were really, really close. And Michelle described Tamar Hodel as the epitome of glamour. And Michelle said that Tamar took her under her wing and bought her clothes and enrolled her in modeling school and taught Michelle how to drive and actually also provided her with a fake ID and a steady stream of prescription drugs obtained by George Hodel. Now, also, according to Michelle, Tamar put on perfect airs around her dad and when it became necessary, she would sleep with him. I don't know why it would become necessary, but apparently Tamar Hodel was fucking Michelle Phillips's dad, so whatever works, I guess. And this is probably why in 1961, Gil Gilliam did not have a problem with allowing Michelle Phillips to move to San Francisco with the daughter of a violent pedophile. (laughs) But soon enough, Tamar actually finds herself in a relationship with journeyman Scott McKenzie, who was the one who sang that Flowers in Your Hair song. And also... John Phillips began coming to Michelle Phillips, well, I guess at the time it would be Michelle Gilliam's room on a nightly basis. So while they were touring, Tamar would have Michelle with her and they would go around. They were like groupies, right, of the journeymen. But soon enough, you know, Tamar would go to Scott McKenzie's room and John Phillips would go to Michelle's room. And, you know, eventually they get married. So... Michelle was actually just 17 when she met 26-year-old John Phillips. And despite the fact that John Phillips was still married to Susie Adams, whom he had two kids with, he was still fucking Michelle Phillips. And eventually they get married. And I guess what one of the most ironic things about this story is, is that Tamar was so traumatized by the incest she endured from her father, Dr. George Hodel, but Michelle, looking up to Tamar, will still go on to marry John Phillips, who was incestuous with his daughter, Mackenzie Phillips. I mean, it's just like, it blows my mind. (laughs) But that's what these Luciferian people do. It's literally, that's their thing. They're all part of this cult. And during the heyday of the Mamas and the Papas, John and Michelle Phillips knew and regularly played host to virtually everyone of importance in the canyon with, you know, their social circle, including Warren Beatty, Peter and Jane Fonda, Jack Nicholson, Terry Melcher, and girlfriend Candace Bergen. Marlon Brando, Roman Polanski, Sharon Tate, Abigail Folger, and Wojtek Frakowski, also soon-to-be-dead gossip colonist Stephen Brandt, Larry Hagman, presidential brother-in-law Peter Lawford. (laughs) So I guess 
we should add Marilyn Monroe to the Laurel Canyon death list as well. <laughs> but anyways, also Dennis Hopper, Ryan O'Neill, Mia, Rosemary's baby, Pharaoh, and also Freemason, Peter Sellers, and Zsa Zsa Gabor. So there are so many ties also between Charles Manson and John Phillips and, you know, of course, other Laurel Canyon luminaries. But And, you know, Michelle Phillips also had a brief affair with Roman Polanski in London while Polanski was married to the soon-to-be-dead Sharon Tate. Now, we're really going to get into some biscuits and gravy here because I got to thinking, like, how did all of this come about? Like, when did this start? When did they decide they were going to form the empire? And I'm obviously going to say it was the early 1960s. But as we've learned so many times, like, they usually signal the entrance of a new era with some massive tragedy or something. And I talked to someone else and they said that there is a demonic gateway that opens and spews forth like all this demonic energy. And it was actually built in the 60s. And I got to thinking like, well, what is it? What is this gateway? <laughs> It turns out that it's the Gateway Arch in St. Louis. And it was built in February 12th, 1963. You guys, this, it's just astounding because if you want to know, I've always thought that the St. Louis Arch was, you know, just a nice little thing that you go take a picture next to if you're passing through the area. But apparently it's not. So how could this connect with the 1960s other than the fact that it was built in the 1960s? Well, the purpose and function of the St. Louis Arch was conceived by this rumored occultist Luther Eli Smith. And it was supposedly constructed to revive the St. Louis Riverfront and stimulate the local economy amid the economic disarray of the Great Depression, which it did. But, however, it also served a far more nefarious purpose. The pinnacle is a tourist attraction by day and a site for ritual sacrifice by night. The St. Louis Arch is situated atop a site of powerful energies, a nexus of converging ley lines of energy from all around the world. The reality of its construction was as a gateway to the unknown. And randomly, and without warning, the Demon Arch activates in any number of abominations, demons, or creatures can step through. And it is rumored that an entire military regiment came through, only to vanish into the countryside without a trace. Now, it's funny we've made all these connections to the military in Laurel Canyon in the 60s, and then I read this thing about an entire military regiment coming through, the Demon Arch, and it's like, this is black magic. 
There are also a lot of things about the construction of the arch itself, which are really dark, occulted, all the numbers. I mean, a numerologist could explain this to you, but that's not really my wheelhouse. What I'm doing is providing you the connection between the 1960s and all this demonic energy. So I also found it funny that someone else connected to the 1960s and the military and the demonic would be Ed and Lorraine Warren because they got their start in the 60s. Ed Warren was also in the military and they stated that their sole purpose was to prove to the world that the devil was real. But all they did was get people more drenched in occult practices and piqued everyone's interest in demonic activity because in the years the Warrens were at the top of their game, Ouija boards sold off the shelf. So I really believe those two people were actually propagating something a lot more different than what they said they were. And it's also funny because one of the cases that they are most famous for was this Lindley Street house, which they investigated a couple of months after the movie The Exorcist came out. And what's the connection there? Well, The Exorcist is based on a little boy named Robbie who lived in St. Louis. <laughs> I'm telling you, you guys, like, this is crazy. So... As I'm doing this research, I get a message from Sean McCann, and I'm shitting you not. He drops this name of an actress who is definitely connected to Laurel Canyon, the 60s, the demons, the devils, all of that. Now, who am I talking about? Her name is Tuesday Weld, and I had never heard of her, but it turns out that Tuesday Weld, during her childhood, exhibited amazing clairvoyant gifts that quickly brought her to the attention of a concealed druidic network of families. And it's here that Tuesday Weld was involved in the world politics and ritual magic. Weld became a fast-rising prodigy in what some people call the Illuminati, the elites, whatever, these demon worshippers, the Luciferians, okay? And at the age of 15, she was chosen as the new queen and high priestess of the Druids. In the initiation rite that signaled her ascension into leadership was the plane crash that carried Buddy Holly, Richie Valens, and the Big Bopper to their deaths in February of 1958, right before the St. Louis Arch was constructed. So this was her inauguration into the cult and becoming the Queen and High Priestess. So you know, I've talked to a lot of people about the plane crash of Buddy Holly, and they say it was just a horrific accident. And I've always had a spidey tingle that no, it was not just a fucking accident. And then I find this and I'm like, I knew it, you know? So 
In the 1960s, Tuesday Weld is this sex kitten of sorts, and she is descended from a royal bloodline of druid witches. And like I said, at a very, very early age, she's selected as high priestess, and from this position, her assignment was ushering in the counterculture movement of the 60s. So she has this position of occult authority and she was able to wield great control over the 60s counterculture and she was influencing people like the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, David Crosby, who, by the way, they were best friends. And it's said that in the 1960s, everybody wanted to have David Crosby's baby because he was part of like this you know, super strong, weird bloodline that had like signers of the Declaration of Independence and, uh, you know, members of the Continental Congress and like all this. He was like our American royalty, right? Everybody wanted to have his baby. And he's BFFs with Tuesday Weld. So Tuesday is pulling the strings behind world events and exercising her occult influence in the realms of the political scene. And that would explain why there's Tuesday references everywhere. And, you know, for an example, Tuesday is, you know, hanging around the Beatles and the Rolling Stones, and they were prodigies of Tuesday Weld's occult revolution. And her influence on the Beatles was most noticeable during the Beatles psychedelic phase. And it alluded to it in songs such as I Am the Walrus, in which the lyric refers to Stupid Bloody Tuesday and also cryptically mentions a pornographic priestess. And other songs that mention Tuesday Weld include Lady Madonna, as well as She Came In Through the Bathroom Window, with the chorus saying, Tuesday's on the phone to me. And in the 1967 Rolling Stones album Between the Buttons, it featured the Billboard hit Ruby Tuesday. So it's also rumored that she was involved with Anton LaVey. And I'm going to just squash this rumor right here because it's actually something you can go and look up in Google. She was actually involved with Anton LaVey. And it's funny because it's also said that Anton LaVey was associated with the Laurel Canyon scene, hinted at in the Eagles' 1977 hit Hotel California. And that hotel was the Chateau Marmont. And in the album cover, not the one where it just says Hotel California and it's like the outside of the hotel, but the one where it's like a bunch of people standing on the inside of the hotel, you can actually see Anton LaVey on the second floor landing. So definitely was involved in Laurel Canyon, definitely involved with Tuesday Weld and the whole scene. So the Chateau Marmont was an old hotel that had long been a fixture on Hollywood Sunset Boulevard. And in November 11th, 1977, New York Magazine interviewed Tuesday Weld at the Hotel Marmont. And she showed up for the interview wearing a witch's hat and witch's skirt. And she reminisced about her years living at the Chateau Marmont and that in itself is enough for me. So let's go ahead and dig a little deeper. Well, 
I found the dedication of the Satanic Bible of Anton LaVey. And in this dedication, it mentions Jane Mansfield, Marilyn Monroe, and Tuesday Welt. So Marilyn Monroe and Jane Mansfield were killed in heinous deaths. But it's funny because he mentions how Tuesday Weld is smarter than them, and that won't basically ever happen to her. So let me read it. Quote, The dedication of my satanic Bible to Marilyn Monroe and Tuesday Weld was, in Marilyn's case, homage to a woman who was literally victimized by her own inherent witchery potential, which was there in her looks. I think a great deal of the feminine mystique of beauty which was personified in Marilyn's image. In the case of Tuesday Weld, it's part of the magical ritual. She is my candidate of a living approximation of these other two women, referencing Marilyn Monroe and James Mansfield. Unlike them, Tuesday has the intelligence and emotional stability to withstand that in which Marilyn Monroe could not. For this reason, Tuesday is not in the public eye as much. Her own better judgment has cautioned her not to bite off more than she can chew. End quote, Anton LaVey. So there we go, right there. And I think it is absolutely astounding that they say the plane crash, which carried Buddy Holly, Richie Valens, and the Big Bopper to their death, was the signal that initiated not only Tuesday Weld as high priestess, but ushered in the counterculture movement of the 60s. And if you don't think that we're not living in the sex, drugs, and rock and roll world that Aleister Crowley dreamed of for us, you'd be high off your fucking ass because we are, thanks to the 60s. So it got me to thinking, who else has died in tragic plane crashes. And so this is just going to be a little bonus to this episode. Because as it turns out, Aaliyah, I have mentioned this before, Aaliyah, Buddy Holly, John F. Kennedy Jr., and his wife, Richie Valens and the Big Bopper, of course, Kobe Bryant, John Denver, also associated with Laurel Canyon, Patsy Cline, Carolyn, as I mentioned, Bassett Kennedy, John F. Kennedy Jr.'s wife, Jenny Riviera, Troy Gentry, a man named Sabas Chandra Bose, and Homie J. Bahadra, I think. I'm probably not saying that right. But so, could these plane crashes also be of occult significance, ushering something in? Well, as a bonus to this episode, let's look into it a little bit. The first one I want to talk about is Patsy Cline because it's really freaking spooky. Patsy had just finalized her will a few months before she was killed in the plane crash. And it instructed that her little kids be left to the care of her friends, which that is so sad. And in the months before she died, she had also began to distribute her prized possessions to her family and friends. And she had said she had premonitions of her own death. And maybe they told her. I don't know. (laughs) Like, it's just weird. It's like, kind of like Buddy Holly always said, like, I don't have time. Like, he kind of was foreboding. Like, he knew he was going to die, right? 
and so did Patsy Klein. Now, let's move on, because this is just a little bonus here. I'm not going to dive too much into detail, but Aaliyah tragically dies in August of 2001 alongside eight others in a plane crash destined for Miami and crashed less than a minute after taking off in the Bahamas. And um, it's said that there was too much weight on the aircraft, which caused it to be difficult to control in the air, and it led to the crash. But the pilot actually had faked his license and was drunk and on cocaine at the time of the accident, according to a 2002 toxicology report. But there is this conspiracy theory that Aaliyah's death was a blood sacrifice with many people saying that Jay-Z, Beyonce, and Dash were the main offending parties. But it's basically believed that Aaliyah had to get taken out in order for Beyonce to rise in the rank, which is why they did this to her. But I also heard that Aaliyah was basically begging not to get on the airplane and somebody actually slipped her like a muscle relaxer or a Xanax or something and basically doped her up, put her on the plane asleep and she, then the plane crashed and she died. So damn is all I got to say about that. So there's also a few members of the royal family dying in plane crashes also in August. And I don't know if there's some kind of occult significance to the month of August. I'm sorry, you guys. I'm only human. There's only so much I can research. But somebody better drop me a fucking message on Instagram and let me know because it's so weird. These royal family members dying in August in plane crashes just like Aaliyah. And the first one I want to talk about is Prince George. He, and he was described as being like vibrant, energetic, whatever, whatever, life of the party. And he was the twin brother of reigning King Edward. So he meets his demise in a plane crash in August. And it's said that the official story is that the pilot miscalculated the flight and sent the plane straight into the side of a mountain. But it's also said that like the pilot was drunk or whatever. So I'm not sure what that's, you know, adding up to, but... I think if you were drunk, it st there's like there's like all these little gauges and stuff that would tell you if you were about to fly into a mountain. I don't know. But so then we have Prince William of Gloucester, who was the queen's first cousin, but he wanted an adventurous and private life. So in the diplomatic services, he fell in love with this Hungarian beauty uh, queen, and they had a romance, but their relationship ended when he was 30. And William of Gloucester actually perished in a plane crash on August 28, 1972, while preparing for a competition at Wolverton Hampton in the West Midlands. Then we have Princess Cecile of Greece and Denmark, 1937. Cecile, who was the third oldest sister of Prince Philip, tragically died in a plane crash en route to London for a royal wedding. 
So on November 16, 1937, Cecile, 26, and her family boarded a flight headed for the capital, and she was joined by her husband, um, the Grand Duke of Hesse, and her mother-in-law, two young sons, and the children's nanny, all died in a plane crash. So then we have the guy that I mentioned earlier on the list whose name is... I think it's Home Baba, but so maybe it's Homey Baba. I sound like a retard right now, but so during World War II, Baba, who was internationally recognized for his work with cosmic rays, was back in India, and he joined the Indian Institute of Science and eventually founded the Tata Institute of Fundamental Research in Bombay. And he often acknowledged the fact that he was risking his life doing his job. And then in January 1966, India lost its nuclear energy pioneer, Baba, in a plane crash. And the Air India Flight 101 from Bombay to New York, which had, of course, Baba on board, crashed into Mont Blanc in the Alps, killing all 117 passengers. So, the history of today's nuclear weapons program of the country can be traced back to the establishment of the Atomic Energy Commission in 1948 with Dr. Homi Baba as its first chairman. And the news of his death came three months after he announced that India can make an atom bomb in 18 months. So basically the theories are indicating that involvement of the CIA in the alleged assassination plan was carried out to prevent India from becoming a nuclear powered nation. So now that's very interesting. So Baba was this visionary scientist who believed that for India to emerge as a superpower, the country would have to expand its nuclear potential, and they were in the process of making an atom bomb, and blah, 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 blah. But so, back in 2017, a Swiss climber, Daniel Rocher, found remains of an aircraft in the Alps. Initially, Rocher, who is an aviation disaster enthusiast, had this idea of the 1966 flight being downed by a missile. (laughs) And evidently this statement fueled countless theories that the India air flight crashed because it was blown up by a missile. So following the Sino-Indian War, the Indian government began to focus on nuclear weaponry under Baba's supervision and with the support of then Prime Minister, something I can't pronounce along the lines of Law Babdur Shastri. And Shastri died allegedly under mysterious circumstances a day after he signed the Tashkent Agreement and 13 days later, Baba died too in the plane crash. So to this date, the official record states that the cause of death of one of its greatest scientific thinkers as a plane crash, but there are hundreds of theories that basically say 
Baba and the Prime Minister were murdered. And that is truly sinister. So it's very, very interesting. There's a lot of occult shit that goes on with this stuff. And again, somebody hit me up about the month of August. I think you guys, you know, are troopers for sticking with me to the very end. And uh, what I'm going to do now is include a clip of someone interviewing. So a late night talk show had asked Tuesday Well to come on and she is introduced as the goddess. I'm sure that's just part of the ritual as well. They got to introduce her as the goddess. And he asks her why her life story doesn't make sense. And it's always like the information has changed or like weird, nothing adds up. And she says, well, I lie about it all the time. So there you go right there. Nobody knows who Tuesday Weld is. And as a cherry on top of the Sunday, was she in any good movies? Uh, no. She was in a lot of bad movies, but one of the one good movies, I guess you could say, was Wild in the Country, featuring Tuesday Weld and someone by the name of Elvis Presley. <laughs> so just to end it on a bang, we can connect Tuesday Weld with none other than Elvis Presley. So let's now sum it up with a little interview of Tuesday Weld. It's the time of the season When love runs high In this time, give it to me easy Asked her to come on the show several times and she hasn't. And she finally said that she would come on. I know that she's been the goddess of many people's fantasies over the years, even though she is not very old. And uh, she said that there's only one stipulation that I could ask her anything I wanted, uh, as long as it was personal, which I think is funny. Will you welcome, please, Tuesday Well. Finally, got you on television after it's really been a long time since you've done it's anything been like this. It's eight years. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And it's another first also. This is the first time I've ever been able to do a show so far without having many bottles is of wine or... Oh, yes, really? because I would just get so incredibly nervous. I'd love to and know. And drunk. <laughs> drunk is the word you were avoiding <laughs> yes. there. Yeah, you know, you've had any, really some life, and I... Um, I, I looked through a lot of things about you. I found some old magazine articles, uh, old interviews and things like that. And I'm confused because they're, they conflict. They don't always agree. Oh, Are you confused, I'm too? confused too, yeah. Can I ask you this since you won't, only want me to be personal? Do, do, did you lie to some of those people in some of those articles or did they get All them wrong? All of the time. You did? Strange. 